Welcome. It's great to have you all here. Thanks for joining us. You know, I saw a UFO this week, you know, an unidentified flying object, or some people like to call them an unidentified aerial phenomena. That's, I think, guess the new term. Yeah, and then it started saying things, you know, clean your room, don't slouch, eat your vegetables. And that's how I knew it was the mothership. So. <laughs> They're doing good all over the galaxy, so. All right, well, it's time to turn it over to someone from this planet. It's Dr. John with the Technology Spotlight. How would you like it if you had a third hand? That would be strange. How about a third thumb? Check this out. No, really. <laughs> A third thumb, that's what we're talking about tonight. And as you can see, this thumb can really move around a lot of the same ways that a normal thumb can. And it's actually 3D printed, and then you control it with your big toes. <laughs> Check this out. You can see how on the boots there are little Bluetooth devices, and inside of them they got little buttons under the big toes you push one big toe and the thumb moves one way and the other big toe and it moves the other way. <clears throat> so why in the world would you want a third thumb? That's the big question. This is actually from some researchers of uh, UCL in London and they weren't studying third thumbs necessarily. They were actually studying the human brain to see what effect having an additional thumb like that would have on the brain. And it's actually pretty interesting concept. Uh, we are used to our fingers. We don't even hardly think about it, and they move the way that we want. But then um, if you do something a whole bunch with a tool, sometimes the tool starts to get that way. Another example is typing on the keyboard. If you practice a lot, pretty soon you don't think about, now where is the A? Your fingers just kind of do it. It's almost like keyboard's a part of you, right? <laughs> well, they found, as they had participants in the study try the thumb, that after a while, it started to feel like one of their fingers, which is pretty weird. And they found that they would move the thumb and do things with it without even thinking about it. And it even changed the way that they used their hand because they had this extra finger. And they could even use it when they were distracted or blindfolded. And uh, so it was pretty interesting. You know, I was thinking, I don't think I would want another thumb because I, I got two good thumbs, you know. But then when I saw these videos, I started wondering, well, I could get used to counting, you know, an extra thumb. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to show you some of the things that these people were able to do after wearing the extra thumb for a little while. And this is pretty handy. So they're stirring and holding their cup in one hand. They, they can carry more glasses, you know, and it's just starting to feel like a normal thumb. Sewing, you know, <laughs> could be pretty handy. How about a banana? <laughs> so you can blow the bubbles and hold the kids, you know, <laughs> all kinds of things. Now, in their study, they were uh, looking at how it affected the test subjects' brains. And they found that all of them could really easily adapt to having this extra finger. And remember, they're controlling it with their toes. But after a little while, they get used to that. And they wore it for like five days, six hours a day, so almost all the time. So it's quite a bit different than a tool. 
and uh, they did some M fMRI scans before and after, and they actually saw some changes in the sensory cortex in the brain of the patients. Uh, let's take a look at this. You can see where they're scanning in the brain, and they had the uh, participants wiggle their different fingers one at a time, and the lighter lines there are where they detected the activity in the brain the first time before they wore the thumb, and then the darker marks are where they detected it after. And they weren't even wearing the robotic thumb in the scanner because it wasn't safe. And you can see that the fingers shifted. It's almost like they were making room for the other thumb in the brain. Remember, uh, the control of the limbs and things are laid out in there uh, so the brain can kind of keep track of it. And we don't understand all the details of why. But this is really interesting because wearing this thumb for just a week changed the way that these people perceived themselves in a way because they were perceiving that they had this other limb. So the question is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And we need more research to <laughs> narrow that down. You know, it seems like more ability is good, right? But if you think about it, it would change a lot of things about our perception if we had that additional thumb. Things like two thumbs up, you would need three thumbs up, right? <laughs> That's different. And what about you go to your friend, high five, or six, you know? <laughs> and so um, it would really be kind of kind of different. But on the other hand, technology around us already is changing our brains in ways like this. I mean, just imagine if you didn't have your smartphone. Be like, where's my other thumb, you know? <laughs> Almost the same kind of thing. Um, but this is definitely some research to keep your thumb on. We'll, we'll see what happens, won't we? <laughs> That's all the tech we have the time for. Now it's time for Breakthrough Moments in Science with Tobias. Sorry, just a second. I just have to take in that thumb thing. That's like a that's like a superpower hero movie. It's like a new Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. He was a man with extra thumbs. Look out! I could beat you in Rubik's Cube with one hand. <laughs> but anyway, you know what else would be nice for? Typing. Okay, now some of us are like, I can already go faster than a human on type. Now some of us type like we're playing a piano. Okay, some of us type like we're playing bingo. Little b, little b, <laughs> bingo. <laughs> okay, some of us type like woodpeckers. <laughs> okay, but typing is something we pretty much all do. But what's going on underneath the hood is pretty incredible. And, you know, it's, it's communicating to the computer that we want this letter to be used, okay? And being able to do that, though, is actually something that had to be really figured out, thought through, problem solved. And, you know, we're, we're talking to something that uses electricity, uses on-off ones and zeros. So how do we make the computer know this command of typing the letter M or whatever we're trying to tell it? Well, as, as engineers were working on this, you know, they started looking at, well, it's, it's, it's like a switch. Okay, we want to turn a current on, turn it off. So can you imagine having a panel of switches, okay, a switch, and you have to turn it on, off for that one, on, off for that one, period. And really, that's what the buttons on a keyboard are. They're on, off switches, okay? And as they started 
figuring out, okay, that's what we want. We want a way to push something, and it's an on-off, on-off. And they had to look at how are we going to lay it out. Um, some early, early computer input setups even used a, a piano key structure um, to be able to do that. And you know, they were looking at how are we going to lay it out. And finally, what they ended up going to was a key system that was already known. People were already using it. The typewriter, okay? Now some of us are like, the type what? Okay, um, the typewriter. And we have to talk about QWERTY. So here's a picture of a keyboard, and look at that top line of letters, QWERTY. And that's the name of this layout that we use, QWERTY. That sounds like a personality. I like Miss Piggy, but she's a bit QWERTY, okay? <laughs> but QWERTY, that's what it's called. Why is it like that? Well, we have to talk about Christopher Schulz. And he's the one who kind of pushed forward the typewriter. Now, we're not going to talk about the breakthrough of the typewriter, but we do need to talk about this layout. Because he tried a lot of different layouts. His, one of his first obvious ones was, well, the alphabet. So he did the middle row, the, the first half of the alphabet, and then the row above it, he did the second half of the alphabet. And he let people try it. Now, what's the typewriter? That's where you take the paper, okay, and you, okay, the sound effects are needed, okay? Because typewriters have these little arms with the letter, an actual physical letter, usually metal, and it swings that arm and it hits the paper with ink. And when it hits it, it scoots the paper down one more space. So as you push the key, it swings the arm of that letter. So that's what the typewriter was. So you get the paper in, and it's sliding the paper. And then you have to move it, move the paper for your next row. OK, oh, this is so much work. I know. But I've tried a typewriter, and I felt magical. I was like, wow, I'm real deal here. OK, but, but going back to it. So the typewriter, that's what a typewriter is. And he's trying to figure out how to get the layout. Well, he found another layout that worked better. Now, one of the big issues he had was when people were typing, if they hit this letter and then this letter, the arms weren't getting out of the way fast enough. And so they'd sometimes get caught. And so he thought, well, this is what I'll do. I'll take the most common letters and move them farther apart from each other so that their arms can swing freely from each other. And I'll name it QWERTY, or at least that's what it was named, because that is his layout, and the layout that we use on most of our keyboards, at least in this country, um, is the QWERTY layout. And it is based on keeping those arms free to hit that paper, okay? We're so high tech, okay? <laughs> Some other fun facts. Um, the R on his key layout was not where the R is now. It was actually swapped with the period. So the period was up there. Like looking for the R, what? So people like Arnold Schwarzenegger, where's the R? Okay, you mean R? No R, okay? And there was two other things I thought were real interesting. No one and no zero on his keys. Because if you need a one, just push L. If you need a zero, push O, okay? Be resourceful, okay? We don't need tissues, we have sleeves, okay? But, the, and one other fun thing is shift. Shift was actually, literally, you push shift to shift to the capital letter, punching. <laughs> we'll use that, so we keep that for shift. But this was what they had, and that's what they ended up adopting for the keyboard. And when Christopher Scholl ended up going through and partnering with the company, they changed the R in the period, they added things, and made it what we know today. But since so many people already knew that layout, it was what ended up being kind of the adopted thing. So the next big thing they had to look at was, how are we going to make these 
button switches work, okay? One of the first ways they looked at was what's called a membrane button. Basically, it's a circuit under the keys, and it's two different circuits, at least two, stacked on top of each other. And when you push on it, you physically are sandwiching those two together and completing the circuit. And now, there's not really a physical uh, confirmation. There's, it doesn't really move to you. It's a really tight squeeze. It's, if you think about like on microwaves, um, this, there's a sound, so you kind of know it's happening. But there's not really much going on physically, okay? That one didn't really catch on very much for keyboards. And finally, they went to one where there was a physical drop down. And they call that the dome switch keyboard. So here's the, the membrane buttons, you know, like on a microwave. And then here's an example of dome switch. Now, there's lots of different techniques on, you know, sometimes they'll use springs. But this is one of the most common now. And you see these, like, suction cup type dome things. That's what's under the keys. And when you push down, it squashes the dome down. And basically what's under it is there's a circuit and there's prongs coming out. Peace. <laughs> they're coming out, but they're not touching. Okay? And then in that dome, there's a circle of something like carbon, a, a, a basically a flat disk of something like carbon. And when you push it down, it goes on top and it finishes the circuit. And so that's how they use it to complete the circuit. Now, when they figured that out and they started using it, they ran into another problem. And it was something called they bouncing is basically what they called it. And when you push it, it's actually pushing it like seven times because of the vibrate. You don't even notice it, but the computer says, okay, you just pushed I five times. <laughs> okay. So they had to actually write a program to adjust and actually have a, a little time window. And if it got pushed that many times, it didn't matter. It was just one. Um, and they had to write that into the program. Now, the next question, I, I mean, I immediately think is, well, how does the computer know I'm pushing this key and not this key, you know? Um, and if you think about it, it's kind of like, well, what they have is a, a mini computer in the keyboard. And you can think of it like a spider on its spider web. And it knows where the flies are. Because it's like, oh, okay, a key has been pushed on the second row on the third column and it knows that one's been pushed. And it tells the mother computer or the main computer that information, and then it figures out what key that was. But all of that's happening uh, super quickly um, in, in to our observation and making something that we don't even think about using, and we just send our letter or whatever we're doing. So pretty incredible, and lots of things that had to go about to making it, but something that started with so, and now, who knows? I mean, in a little while, we might have a whole other keypad for our thumb. You know, <laughs> thank you. All right. All right, and now, introducing Roger Billings. So we have a mothership uh -huh. and a mother computer. Uh -huh. Must be Mother's Day. <laughs> it was. And we have a flask. Look at that. Is that an Earl Meyer? 
What is it? Oh. <laughs> wow, and flowers. Mothership goes with the alien thing, huh? Are those for me? I can hear that. <laughs> Let you know I'm coming. Oh, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it takes practice. Yeah, how do you, know you do that? that works. You know why. <laughs> okay. Anyway, <clears throat> so that was really good, guys. Thanks. We got a lot of science and technology so far tonight, didn't we? Uh, it's interesting that uh, Tobias would tell us about quirky keyboards. Um, I wonder if he knows how much I got involved in keyboards. So back in the 70s of the last century when we were making the Billings computer, there weren't personal computers with keyboards, and so I was building one, and I found switches, because you couldn't buy a keyboard, you had to make one. So I found some switches, and I set them up, and I got 20 different kinds of switches, and I had everybody I could find come in and try them. The kind where you push it, and it hits the key, but it doesn't move, people did not like. So we had to have a ductile feedback. So when you push it, it kind of goes snap, and you know you've touched it. And that was the keyboard that people wanted. It's interesting, we did have to make a circuit to debounce the keys. And he talked about that, you know, we, we made one of those. Because when you push it, you want to get only one, and then you turn it back on in a second so that it doesn't go ta-da-da-da. And that's, you know, he's right. That definitely did happen. But uh, the keyboard that we finally chose for the Billings computer was a, a key switch called the Cherry Switch. It was made by a company in California, Cherry Switch Company. And we chose those and we ordered them and we started building our computers. And we were thrilled because from that first ad, we sold 900 computers. And that was a lot for us to build in our little tiny factory. And so we're expanding to a bigger factory, buying parts, getting the computers ready. And all of a sudden, we had a lot of computers ready to ship but no keyboards. We had the keyboard, but we didn't have the switches because we had to put the switches in the keyboard. We made the circuit ourselves. And so I called the people and I said, hey, we've ordered switches. You know, our order's now three months old. Where are they? They said, well, everybody wants our switch. You know, we'll, we'll ship you as many as we can. And they wouldn't ship them. They wouldn't ship them. And I had customers complaining. And uh, what do you do? What do you do? We had one very, very aggressive secretary in our company, and she got things done. I really liked her because she, she was a make-it-happen person. So I said, when's the last time you had a vacation to California? <laughs> I said, how would you like to go down and visit the Cherry Switch Company? And I explained to her that we have all these computers, look at them. They're all just waiting for switches, then we can ship them, and we've gotta get them, they won't ship any. Will you please go down there and do it? She said, sure. So she took off for California. She got there, and uh, they wouldn't even meet with her. They were busy, they, 
what, what can we do? Well, I came to get switches. Well, you know, we, we don't have enough. We'll ship them when we can. You have to have clout with people, you know, when there's things in short supply. And so, like every good person, at that point, you give up and go home. But she didn't. She went and sat down in their waiting room. Next morning, she went back and sat in their waiting room. She said, three days. And then they gave us switches. It's a good lady. Yeah, she, she really saved our bacon, and it was really, really exciting. And it just shows that you cannot get discouraged even at the bottom of the optimization curve. You have to keep charging. And it really, really does make a difference. Do you mind if I move this? I was wondering if we were going to keep those there all night. Sure. <laughs> Where do you want them, Ivan? No, it's all right. It's... Okay. So uh, <clears throat> that isn't what we're going to talk about tonight. They just brought that up, and I just wanted to comment. Okay. But it is neat. If you get to try one of the Billings computers, feel how tactile the switches are. They're really nice. Yeah. Hard to get, but very nice. And it was interesting when we had people come and try them, uh, there was a pretty big consensus that that was the best switch. And you know, you're coming out with something like that that people have never seen before, and they'd start typing, and it would show up on the screen, and, and it wasn't something that we're used to. But who would ever think that the weird position of those keys was so that the arms wouldn't get locked? Fascinating, isn't it? Is that a lot how things work out? Okay, well today I want to talk about hydrogen again because we've been talking about it and I think we're up to a, an interesting point. We, we looked at the engine last time and how uh, when you burn hydrogen, the byproduct is water vapor except when I did my science fair project, I found out that the exhaust from my engine from the Model A Ford was not just water vapor. I also had a strange substance called nitric oxide. When we found the nitric oxide in the exhaust, I had never heard of it before. It's a chemical that uh, experts in Los Angeles know about because it's the main ingredient in their photochemical smog. A nitrogen oxide is caused when you heat air, which is made up of nitrogen and oxygen, and when you heat it to a high enough temperature, some of the nitrogen and oxygen combine and form a new molecule called NO, NO. And it's, it's not good stuff. In fact, when it reacts with water in the presence of uh, sunshine, it transforms, in, excuse me, it reacts with oxygen, ozone, forms ozone and nitrogen dioxide. Nitrogen dioxide is a brown gas, and when nitrogen dioxide reacts with water, it forms nitric acid, which is pretty bad. And that's one of the real problems of smog in Southern California. Uh, so here's my pollution-free hydrogen car in high school making large amounts of nitric oxide. 
more nitrogen oxide than a gasoline car. Any engine, when it burns with air, is going to make some nitric oxide. But the hydrogen engine made 10 times more. And the reason it did is the flame burns so fast with hydrogen that the peak temperature was higher, which created more nitric oxide. And so when I uh, arrived at the university, I was very, very interested in finding out how to get rid of that nasty nitric oxide pollutant. Hydrogen should burn free, pollution free. And it didn't, and I wanted to know why. And I wanted to find a way, way to solve it. Um, so how do you go about that? It's wonderful to go to a university, and I was fortunate to go to a, to a very good university. It's called BYU. And as a freshman, uh, I was determined to get rid of that nitric oxide pollution from a hydrogen engine. And so I wrote a proposal. And my proposal was, I would like to do research on getting rid of the nitric oxide pollution, and I won the science fair, and would you please fund it? And I sent it to Ford Motor Company. And they wrote back and said, uh, we will fund it. Here is a contract. You need to have someone authorized for university sign it, and we'll give you money. Now, it wasn't a lot of money, but to me it was a lot of money. I, I thought, whoa, this is exciting. <laughs> So I, uh, I didn't know any of the big shots at my university. I mean, I was a little shot. I was a fresh man. And so I went over to the administration building, and I went into the vice president of academics office, who I'd never met. And one thing I learned is it's real easy to meet secretaries. It's hard to meet people, but you can meet their secretaries. So I went into the secretary, and I... I explained to her that I've got this contract from Ford Motor, I need to get signed. She says, okay, just leave it here. Okay. Came back the next day. Oh, I've got that for you. It's all signed. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Sent it back to Ford. <laughs> and I was really, really excited. But their agreement had some real interesting things in there. It said that BYU was going to give me a research laboratory, that they would provide it if Ford would give this money. And so I was... I'm going to get a laboratory. <laughs> so uh, I went back to the secretary, and I said, by the way, uh, where's my laboratory? Where, where should I work? And she said, what do you mean, where should you work? And I said, well, the contract said that the university is going to give me a research lab, and I'm just wondering what you were thinking. I said, just a minute. I got to meet the vice president. <laughs> Uh, he thought I was a graduate student, I guess. And uh, anyway, um, they assigned a chemistry professor, Dr. Blackham, to work with me, and they found me a little place to work, which was underneath the seats of the chemistry lecture hall. And you know, if you go in a lecture hall, they have these different layers like that. Well, my laboratory went the opposite. <laughs> I was down underneath those seats, and it was a good place. I was excited to have it, and so I started figuring out, what am I going to do to get rid of this nitric oxide? Well, there's a lot of stories that I could tell about how that research proceeded, but it was that project that got me in the computer field, which has turned out to be a very, very important part of my career because we developed a computer, a computer program to analyze 
the chemistry of combustion inside a hydrogen engine. And this program would allow us to react different uh, reactants and see what the pollution would be. And so as we were doing that, we soon learned that the way you eliminate nitric oxide is you keep the peak temperature lower. But how do you keep the peak temperature lower? You can lean out the fuel, but then there's no power. And over a period of time, I started realizing that there might be a way to get rid of that high peak temperature by spraying water in with the hydrogen into the chamber. Water droplets, that would be. And where would you get the water? Well, you get the water by making it by burning hydrogen. So my idea is I can condense the water out of the exhaust, put it back in, and it will make the nitric oxide go down. So we tried it. We, but the opportunity to try it came at a, a really interesting time because I heard on the news that there was going to be a major competition between universities to see who could make the most pollution-free car. <laughs> it's perfect. It's got to be hydrogen. And so we send in an entry from BYU. BYU car is going to run on hydrogen. And so we, we needed a car to be able to take there. And, and uh, I was very fortunate to uh, have an opportunity to meet the owner of the local Volkswagen dealership. <laughs> and I explained to him that uh, we were doing a science project and we needed a car to convert to hydrogen for this competition. And we, we promised we would bring it back. Could he loan us one? I couldn't afford to buy it. And he went along with it, and I was very grateful. We converted the car. When it got running on hydrogen, we sprayed water into the intake manifold that we condensed out of the exhaust. And then we got a sample of the exhaust, and we took it to the same analyzer that had ruined my science fair project. <laughs> it was a gas chromatograph, and we ran it through, and that big old peak of nitric oxide pollutant wasn't there. So I knew it was a lot less, but I, this instrument wasn't sensitive enough to see if it really wasn't there. It, it at least was a lot less. So the car went to the General Motors Proving Grounds in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where all these universities met together to compete. And here we are with our little green Volkswagen running on hydrogen. There were two other hydrogen cars there, one from UCLA. And they were trying to get rid of the nitric oxide from burning hydrogen in their car by recirculating the exhaust. And they thought that really helped. And and they had a yellow little car that, that they entered. There were a lot of electric cars. There was a, one car from Tennessee that ran on ammonia. <laughs> and uh, they had a catalyst that would get rid of the ammonia in the exhaust. But it only worked after it got warm. So for about the first 30 minutes, for three blocks, <laughs> you could smell the ammonia. I didn't think that was too cool. And then there was the, the flywheel car. And that was a car that they actually had a flywheel that had spin up real fast. And, 
and it had so much energy they could drive with it and do the test. Now you had to go inside the laboratory, put it on a dynamometer, which is these big rollers that you, you drive on without the car moving because it's just spinning the rollers and they test it. And uh, for this flywheel car, they go outside, they back up to a big semi-truck and they would rev up this flywheel, and I'm sitting there looking at this big cloud of black smoke coming off the semi, and they get it spinning, then they go driving inside. There is no pollution. <laughs> <laughs> Look out there. Zero pollution. They had a perfect score. I thought, well, something wrong with that. I knew ours wouldn't be zero, and then the electrics. They got in there to measure the pollution from the electric cars, and they couldn't find an exhaust pipe. So they were zero, 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 zero. So all the electric cars, the flywheel car, all had perfect zero emissions. Now, <clears throat> our turn came, and uh, I was pretty nervous. Uh, we got ready to, to go in, and I went and started the car to pull it in for our turn to test and it wouldn't start. And that's kind of scary. Everybody was watching, and our little BYU Volkswagen would not start. And uh, panic. I lifted up the, you know, the engine and the Volkswagens in the back. I lifted up the hood and looked at it, and I noticed that the spring on the accelerator had been cut. Now, maybe it just broke but it was really, really strange. And we had no time, it was our turn. We're gonna get disqualified. What do you do, what do you do, what do you do? I borrowed a rubber band. <laughs> we put a rubber band around it, started right up and we went in. So now we have a car powered by rubber bands. It's <laughs> gotta be good, it's gotta be good. But we went in and they wouldn't let us go in the dynamometer room but we could watch through this big window from outside. So our car's in there, <clears throat> and the guy, the GM tester, was driving it, and we watched, and, and right in the middle of the test, they stopped. Now that kind of scared me, because that's what happened with the ammonia car. They stopped in the middle, and then they recalibrated all of the instruments, and they ran it again. They stopped a second time, recalibrate them, and when the test was posted on the window, their nitric oxide from the ammonia car was so high they had to keep changing the range on the instruments. And so we're going along, and all of a sudden they stop, and uh-oh, there's that darn nitric oxide again. And then they stopped a second time, and finally they finished the test, but when they came and they put up the results, there was something really, really astounding. They had stopped because our emissions were so low they had to turn up the sensitivity of the instrument, the opposite of the Tennessee car. And the fascinating thing was the way they scored this competition. There are three main kinds of pollution from gasoline engines. There's unburnt hydrocarbon, unburnt fuel, carbon monoxide, and nitric oxide. So what they did for their scoring formula, they took the amount of each one times 100, and then they added them up, and whoever had the lowest score won. Well, it turns out that in our case, 
the carbon monoxide, the instruments were so sensitive they could smell the carbon monoxide just in the air. And when that air that had just a trace of carbon monoxide went through the hydrogen engine, it burned it up. So carbon monoxide was negative. Hydrocarbons, it burned it up. It was negative. Nitric oxide was one part per million. It was essentially none there. And when they added up the whole score, we had a minus number. We beat the flywheel, we beat the electrics, we beat everybody, which made you kind of proud. Felt pretty good. <laughs> so we got headlines from newspapers all over the country BYU car cleans the air as it drives. Now, it didn't clean it very much, but that didn't matter. It was just enough to win. And then someone sent me the headline from the Los Angeles Times. And the LA, LA Times said, this BYU car would probably stall driving in Los Angeles air because <laughs> it's so dirty. Anyway, it was really, really exciting. Now, I'd like to, to show you these cars, or this car. Do you want to take a look at it? Let's take a look at this shot. So there it is. That is the Volkswagen. That very, very handsome guy hiding behind there is John Wayne Jr. <laughs> well, you knew John Wayne. <laughs> but I, I want you to look at these two guys that I'm talking to because they had just seen this car that cleans air as it drives. These are two guys from the Environmental Protection Agency. And they were very, very, very interested in the fact that you could have a pollution-free car. One looks confused. Yeah, One in like, the back. holy Yes. All right, let's look at this next shot. This is the car on the dynamometer with the, this taking a picture through the window while they were testing. You notice the big sign there, Urban Vehicle Design Competition, number 303. And you can't see it in this picture, but the big rollers are there. So it's making it really do work like it's driving through what they call the LA4 cycle. Uh, this is a, a pretty big moment in my career because this really proved that hydrogen cars can be pollution free. And this idea of spraying the water droplets into the intake absolutely eliminated the nitric oxide. And I received a patent for that idea. So how do you spray it in there? <laughs> I actually used a little, you want the details? I huh? do, I want to okay. know how you spray it in We got there. a little spray nozzle that they normally use in a grocery store to put a mist out on the vegetables. Oh, and we just I didn't know that. Pump the water through there. We use the fuel pump on the engine to pump the water from the, the exhaust system, mm -hmm. which uh, we were condensing it from. So it was not so high tech, but it, it worked. Well, it worked really yeah. well. The UCLA car came in behind us, but their nitric oxide was quite a bit higher because they were just recirculating the exhaust. It was better than my first hydrogen car, but it wasn't nearly as good as ours, and so we won the urban vehicle design competition. I will add that the UCLA car won another prize of the contest. It was to see who could make the most pollution-free car, so we won that. But they won a special novelty award because they had a bumper 
on the front of their car that was made out of beer cans. <laughs> so that if you had an accident and you crashed into another car, smashing the beer cans would absorb the energy. <laughs> Pretty creative. But also add that the, the head of the UCLA project, a gentleman named Frank Lynch, and I became friends, and he later uh, moved to my hometown where we started our Billings Energy Corporation together, so UCLA joined forces with us. Um, his partner, the other guy that did the, the car, uh, became a, a major engineer. His name was Joe Feingold, a major engineer at Jet Propulsion Laboratories, and did a lot of really great research work down the road. So why do you call nitric oxide brown gas? Is it literally brown? Well, nitric oxide is, is colorless, hmm. but nitrogen dioxide is brown. Okay. Yeah, and it stinks. When, when you inhale it, just the moisture in your nose turns it into the uh, nitric acid, and it's, it's pretty nasty stuff. It's a, a bad smog, and in L.A. you see that kind of brown mm -hmm. layer from the nitrogen dioxide which is bad stuff. Not like nitrous oxide. Makes you happy. Which is laughing gas. No, that's, that's a different bill. That's the stuff you see coming out of dental offices. <laughs> yeah. Makes them happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And everybody else. <laughs> okay, so uh, this is uh, an example of taking a project and going through the steps. Once this car demonstrated what it was capable of, then we were able to start quite a few different programs and projects. From there, we converted a postal Jeep to run on hydrogen and delivered the mail. In that particular car, the hydrogen uh, was stored in the form of a powdered metal hydride. We're going to talk more about that later. That is an amazing technology that I think has real potential. We were able to convert eventually two buses to run on hydrogen. One in Provo, Utah, one in Riverside, California. We were able to convert automobiles for several auto companies. We worked with Mercedes. In fact, Mercedes was the biggest automotive customer I worked with. And uh, Peugeot in France, and anyway. Uh, I actually ended up converting, I think, 23 different vehicles to run on hydrogen for different people. Uh, and it, it was a long time before this technology could come out of just the, the research and development phase because when you run an engine on hydrogen, it was of similar efficiency to gasoline, running the gasoline engine, and it made the fuel too expensive. In 1991, a couple decades later, when we converted the first car to use a hydrogen fuel cell, like we showed last week, then all of a sudden, it tripled the range, cut the cost of the fuel to one-third, and that's when it started to become feasible. And that's what I think all of the cars, which you see now being manufactured by seven auto companies, are based on is the hydrogen fuel cell. And it's, it's pretty exciting. It is. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> It's fascinating that uh, a technology is uh, 
is something that you develop using math and science and the tools that you learn in classes like Acellus. But just having a good technology is not enough to have a viable project. You also have to have other things. And uh, one of the things that I really struggled with in, in high school was understanding that there is any reason that a person won't study English. <laughs> I, I kind of felt like maybe that's not a good use of people's time. You don't want to be an author, do you? <laughs> I did want to, but I didn't know it. But it turns out that a very important part of science is being able to communicate, communicate and to communicate convincingly. In some of our English courses, we actually not only teach you to spell and use proper grammar and punctuation so people can understand what you're saying, but also teach how to write convincingly. How do you convince people that you're right? And eventually that gets into the whole field of marketing. And marketing is where you help somebody be able to understand why your technology, why your product is worth investing in. Why would someone want to have it? Uh, not always the best technology is the one that catches on. Sometimes the second or third best catches on because they have better marketing, because they know how to tell their story better, because they know how to communicate better. So if any of you are interested in science, don't be fooled like I was at first, thinking that you don't need those communication skills. You do. You really do need them. And that's one of the reasons why we have these rounded educations, because it all is part of being able to succeed, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how'd you get the idea of putting the water in? The water. Uh, well, it was nice having the computer so I could try things. Mm -hmm. I put everything I could think of in there. I wondered. <laughs> but you know, if you're going to put something into the engine to get rid of the nitric oxide, it has mm -hmm. to be something that you have. And what did I have? I mean, I put things I never knew where I'd get them, and I tried different things. And, and, uh, but then when I started thinking about it, what do I have? Well, I have water. But I thought if you put water in, it's going to put the flame out. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, that is exactly kind of what happened. In fact, uh, there was a real bonus to it. And I published a few papers on this, and it's also something that's mentioned in my book. But if you realize that when I sprayed the water in, there were water droplets, and they, they were pretty small, but compared to the size of an atom, they're enormous. Each of those droplets, I'm sure, had billions of atoms, okay? And they go inside the engine. So as the hydrogen gets ignited, the flame starts burning through the chamber. And as the flame comes through the chamber, it gets to the place where it hits one of these water droplets. And when it does, the water droplet flashes to steam because of the flame. And when it does so, it takes a lot of the heat out of the hydrogen. So it cools down the flame. Now, when gases flash to steam, they expand 1,400 times to one. That's what a steam engine does. And as those water droplets expanded, they created pressure that pushed the piston down. And so here's the interesting thing. 
by spraying the water in the combustion chamber, the engine had a little bit more power and was more efficient. Didn't expect that, did you? I didn't. No, I, I, I invented it. You know it's going to happen. <laughs> I, I observed it. That. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And, you know, it's only a few percent, but it's, it's a lot oh. better than losing power. Mm -hmm. Now, I tried in the computer program to put water droplets in a gasoline engine, and it put the flame out. Gasoline won't burn with those water droplets, especially that much. But hydrogen burns so fast that it still gave me 100% complete combustion. And a little tiny increase in pressure, little increase in efficiency, and nitric oxide just dropped from, you know, well, well over 1,000 parts per million down to one part per million. So mm -hmm. it really was a neat solution to a problem. Mm -hmm. And I was really grateful for the clean air race because it gave me a way to really measure how low it was. We did not have any equipment at our school that could measure nitric oxide down at those super low levels. But General Motors had it. And so they, they checked it and, and it was extremely low and I was, I was really grateful to learn that. Mm -hmm. Okay? Okay. All right. <laughs> These are all my questions. <laughs> I don't know what questions I have. <laughs> Good. So um, I have a question for you. Oh, yeah? Is it in there? <laughs> There's a question coming in. Oh, okay. I can't see clear over there. <laughs> but um, do you think we should get another social-emotional course? Oh, no, not that question. <laughs> I mean, I just like their opinion. Kind of busy. We haven't had any for I'm a long busy. time. Mm, I don't think they need one. <laughs> wondering why I'm asking her on camera, yeah, right? Yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> so when we needed a social-emotional course, and they came and said, we need it, we need it, we need it, we need it. And I thought, well, where are we going to find a teacher? And we started looking. We couldn't find a teacher. And so I put on my best smile. Yeah, that's the smile you know you're in <laughs> and trouble. And I said, <clears throat> do you still like challenges? I'll go get those switches any day. <laughs> those are my kind. <laughs> oh. We really need a new social-emotional course. I'd just like to say, if any of the students would like a new social-emotional course, would you please send a message <laughs> so that we will... What? <laughs> just send a message so that we will... Because I think that She's ready to do a really outstanding course. This time, huh? This time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, one of the You're parents seriously asking that? that? I, I mean, I'm just asking them their you opinion. Okay. We had a parent that reached out to us, mm -hmm. and they said, you know, uh, I've been going through the social-emotional lessons to see if I want to have my student take them or not. And the parents said, I think we need to offer these to the parents. They'd be very, very helpful for the parents. <laughs> yeah, she did, so. she did say that. I read that. So I'm person. figuring out a way to do that. It's a way so parents can take them if they want to see what we're presenting to their students. But you know, uh, Dr. Peje Monet prepared herself to teach the social emotional lessons by getting a degree in electrical engineering. <laughs> this is funny. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> okay. But 
she has such an exceptional way of looking at the world, I thought she'd really be able to help a lot of people. And judging from the correspondence I have, uh, she really was successful. Now, we did bring in some experts to kind of guide and manage and to make sure that, you know, Sweep our mind we too didn't much. step in it, <laughs> but in the in the period of time since those were filmed, we've learned an awful lot. Uh, the world has completely changed; it's been turned upside down, and I think it's ready for a different kind of a social emotional lesson. And I, uh, I'm just wondering if any of you would please give me some moral support <laughs> on letting her know how we feel about it. Um, it's one of the hardest things we could ask you, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It really is. It really is. So I'm not going to read all those. I just want to let you know. <laughs> I'm screaming. I just want to let you know that we would really, really, really appreciate it. And right now, we have just started development on a new PE course, which I'm really excited about. And people would really like to maybe combine it. I think we need social, emotional the next generation. What do you think? Yeah, well, there's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and, but no pressure. <laughs> no. She took the page down. <laughs> she can't do that. Okay. They think that we should have one. Well, I really think it would be a good idea. And it is, it's a big job. And we now have some really wonderful talent to help you to figure out exactly the kind of things that could be taught. It turns out that the educators of the nation are starting to figure out more and more what should be taught, which makes this much more doable. So everybody else feeling comfortable in the room, maybe they shouldn't be right now. Why? You want to team teach with me? <laughs> Tobias and Peugeot. <laughs> <laughs> Tobias, Tobias told me that he would film it. Yeah, well, the students want Tobias and Peugeot. They want Tobias to Yeah. 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 Well, I'll tell you what. Um, I'm, I'm talking That's about really crazy ideas. I've been thinking about <laughs> doing a program. Uh, we'll call this the special summer edition of Science Live. Okay thinking about having a program that is all about music and entertainment, the talent of Tobias. Would anybody like that? The Tobias, should we call it the Tobias Show? Maybe we'll call it Tobias Live. <laughs> what do you think? I think we should. But we could do impersonations. Uh, people haven't seen it until they hear him no. sing. He can do the same. And, you know, this could be that kind of program. So we'll get something going middle of this summer. Does that sound good? So if she will teach <laughs> social-emotional, oh, then yeah. you'll do this. <laughs> this is called bartering. <laughs> this is called being put on the spot, and you know I have to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> Look right in the camera and smile and say yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, well, anyway, we will get right to work on it. So hopefully this fall we'll have this fall. A whole <laughs> okay. You didn't commit to that, did you? We can do that. We certainly don't need it before fall. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. We'll look forward to seeing you next time. Have a wonderful week.
Hi, sex. <laughs>